As you start to reach more people, things start to feel more complex. There's more to do and more to keep track of, and it starts to actually take time away from creating content. I felt this struggle personally. The more creator science grew, the more it felt like I was dropping the ball. So I did something about it. I built a set of rock solid systems, all in Notion to support the business as we grew. And it worked like a charm. I've now taken my personal Notion setup and productized it. It's called Creator HQ, and it's the complete operating system that you need for your creator business. I built Creator HQ to be an all-in-one workspace designed to save you more time, create more content, and drive more revenue. By leveraging Creator HQ, we are publishing more than we ever have, and we're nearing $1 million in annual revenue because of it. It brings all of your data and processes into one place with custom-built dashboards to reduce friction in managing tasks, creating content, and collaborating with your team. I've seriously spent more than three years building this, and now you can have the same systems that I use right out of the box. In the lab, one of our members just posted, I have spent the last few weeks diving into Creator HQ, learning how it works, and making it my own. This is the first time in a while that I felt this organized and filled with hope that I can find a workflow that will work for me with my whole business. This is gold. I will definitely be giving a testimonial for this badass product. If you're new to Notion, don't worry. I've included a ton of specific tutorials to help you learn how to use Notion generally and Creator HQ specifically. I've never seen another Notion product integrate tutorials like we have here. More than 300 other creators are already using Creator HQ, and I am not exaggerating when I say I would be lost without this system. Creator HQ is what keeps the trains running over here. As a podcast listener, I'm giving you my best price. You can get 10% off using the promo code podcast at checkout. Just head to creatorhq.co to watch the video and learn more. That's creatorhq.co and use promo code podcast to save 10%. I don't see much of a difference between Kanye West and Beethoven. Like, I just don't. They exist in two different times and eras and they're, you know, different race. But at the end of the day, they're just creatives and they're just expressing ideas through art. And there's something timeless about that, just that that expression. Welcome to Creative Elements a show where we talk to your favorite creators and learn what it takes to make a living from your art and creativity. I'm your host, Jay Klaus. Let's start the show. Hello, my friend. Welcome back to Creative Elements. As you may or may not know, Creative Elements just crossed the one-year mark and celebrated its first birthday. I've had an absolute blast creating this show for you every week, and I couldn't be more thankful for you listening every week and supporting the show. The show totally outperformed my expectations, breaking 500,000 downloads in its first year, and it's pretty unbelievable. It just motivates me to continue making the show better and better every week. The bar of quality that I set for myself is really, really high. And it's set in large part by one of my own favorite podcasters, who I'm lucky to have here on the show today. His name is Cole Kushna, and he hosts a show called Dissect. Welcome to Dissect, long-form musical analysis broken into short, digestible episodes. I'm your host, Cole Kushna. I first started listening to Dissect in 2018, and I really wish I could remember who told me about this show, but I started listening to season two and was absolutely blown away. As you heard Cole say there in the intro, 
Dissect is a show about long-form musical analysis. Each season of the show, Cole chooses an album, and each episode of that season takes one song on that album and deconstructs how and why it was made. I'm talking about 40-minute episodes digging into songs that are sometimes less than three minutes long. And that's what makes Dissect so good. Season 2 of the show dissected Kanye's 2010 album, My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy. I love that album, and I loved it before I listened to Cole's podcast, but Dissect made me love it way, way more. Because Cole goes far beyond the lyrical content of the song. Cole digs into the samples that Kanye uses, the way he produces the beat to every song, even down to individual notes and chords. And to take it a step further, Cole really contextualizes each album. He puts into perspective the culture of the time through both current events and what the artist was going through. Here's a short clip from episode one of season two. On September 13th, 2009, a 15-second sequence of events altered the trajectory of contemporary popular music forever. Yo, Taylor, I'm really happy for you. I'm gonna let you finish. But Beyonce had one of the best videos of all time. One of the best videos of all time. I know, I'm sick of hearing this too. But there's really no avoiding its significance. Now permanently embedded in pop culture infamy, Kanye West's drunken interruption of Taylor Swift's acceptance speech at the 2009 MTV Music Video Awards caused torrential public disgust across the globe. Kanye was instantly vilified. The level of production that Cole puts into this show is just unmatched. He just began releasing episodes for season 8, which is covering another Kanye album, Yeezus. But he's dissected To Pimp a Butterfly by Kendrick Lamar, Blonde by Frank Ocean, Flower Boy by Tyler the Creator, Damn by Kendrick Lamar, Lemonade by Beyonce, and Because the Internet by Childish Gambino, too. And when he started Dissect in 2018, he was doing it on the side while working full-time as a creative director for a coffee roaster and being a dad to a newborn daughter. But as you'll hear in the interview, it was his education in music composition and theory that laid the foundation for him to create this show. Most of the people I went to school with were classically trained their whole life. I had never taken lessons. I think I took like one or two guitar lessons and quit because I just I wanted to be Jimi Hendrix, not play classical guitar. I didn't want mm-hmm. to read music. I just wanted to, you know. And so I came from this world of like 10 years, 12 years of like no formal training, just self-taught, you know. And then I go into this world where most people are classically trained and they've been playing, you know, Mozart, Beethoven their whole lives. I just saw this, this, there's a separation between these two worlds where I came in and I was like, actually, no, these are the same worlds and why are we separating them? Cole may not have been classically trained as a musician, but he was definitely a student of music. And more specifically, he was an avid fan of hip hop because as he says, hip hop is the leading voice and driving force of our culture. And that's why I kind of stay with hip hop because it is the music of today. You know, if I did this podcast 15 years ago, it probably would have been centered on like rock music, you know, because that was the country's microphone at that time. But now it's hip hop pretty definitively. In this episode, we talk about Cole's attempt at being a professional musician, his love of creative writing, the beginnings of Dissect, and how his perseverance through late nights paid off in helping him create Dissect full time. This episode was a blast to put together. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode as you listen. You can find me on Twitter or Instagram at jklaus.
And if you're not already in our listeners community on Facebook, I'd love for you to join. The link is in the show notes. But now, let's talk to Cole. Yeah, my college experience is pretty weird, I would say. I started going to college right after high school, and I hated it. I hadn't, at that point in my life, I hadn't really found what I now consider a real love for education. And it was just, I was taking the the standard classes, just wasn't into it, and ended up like dropping out the first time. I, I guess I dropped out twice, but so I dropped out like after that first year, just like, you know, I was 18 and wanted to just have fun. But then I ended up going back and just taking classes that I wanted to take. So that's really what got me started seriously about college and actually falling in love with education. So I started taking classes, essentially they're all creative classes, writing classes, philosophy classes, religion classes, film even. And I just wasn't doing it for credits. I mean, I was getting credits, but I wasn't working towards any kind of major or anything. And I was just loving learning and loving reading. And I just kind of fell in love with that whole world. But ironically, I dropped out again because at that time I was also playing in a band. What were you playing in those bands? I started out playing guitar and then I ended up being playing piano as my major instrument. I knew that to have any chance with that band making it, I was like 25 at the time. And I was like, okay, if I'm really ever going to actually do this thing, I've been playing in bands for 10 years. So it's like, if I'm ever going to try to like make a career out of this, I just need to like give it up my all. And I just actually wrote my parents a long letter kind of explaining my decision and like, um, and just kind of going for it. And so I stopped going for a couple, I want to say a couple of years and just gave it my all. It ended up not working out. I actually ended up not being the thing that I wanted to do after all, after kind of finding some success there and kind of seeing where that road led. I was like, yeah, I actually don't want this. And so then I went back to school. This is like a really long story to start your podcast. Sorry. I love it. Um, so then I ended up going back to school, but this time for music. And it was a much more focused, like, I was like, okay, I still want to do something with music, but maybe let me find a lane in the collegiate world because I already love education and I love that world. And I already gave this other world of like playing in a band a try. And so I was like, let me see if there's a lane for me here. And so that's when I really went back to school and got my degree in in music composition and theory. When you were pursuing music full-time, I've always had this assumption that the most difficult about that is probably just coordinating three to five people's schedules when this yep. isn't generating a lot of income. Is Was that your experience or what was the hardest part of that when you're trying to make it work? Yeah, as soon as it became, you know, you never want to kind of mix business and creativity, but it was just a kind of an inevitable point at that point in my life, I'd just gotten married and, you know, you start to think about how am I going to support an eventual family and stuff. So as soon as the flip switched, where I was like, these are no longer just my creative buddies, they're actually my business partners, that really changed things in my mind. And like you said, it is complicated to have three to four other people's vision be the same exact vision and also committing to the same exact vision in the same intensity. So it was definitely part of the, the point of why I kind of stopped pursuing that route was our vision, our vision aligned. We all wanted to kind of like make it in a band, but I didn't think the effort was, wasn't doled out equally. And I think there was, there's also the whole like drug and alcohol partying scene and girls and all that stuff, which was not why I was in a band, but you can see why someone would want to take advantage of those things if they're in a band. So that was another thing. So it's all about like, as you're growing up, 
life goals aligning and kind of life philosophies aligning work ethic and it's it's hard like it it doesn't never it never surprises me when a band breaks up it always surprises me when a band stays together you know you hear about these bands staying together for 10 20 years i'm just like how are you doing that <laughs> it seems impossible it seems crazy that's the anomaly breaking up is the regular well you mentioned when you when you dropped out to try to do this thing full time you wrote your parents a big long note and as you were talking about I went to college. I didn't necessarily have a thing I was working towards yet. And I was also doing music. I was thinking to myself, my parents would have never let me do that. Uh, <laughs> did, you, did you have to fight upstream on that? Yeah, I think, you know, I have great parents. And as a creative person my whole life, I think their concern was always like the, the typical concern you have for your kids, which is how are you going to make a living? How are you going to support yourself? How are you going to support a family? Artistic endeavors rarely flesh out in into that kind of success, very hard to do. And so they were definitely, definitely when I, and especially when I was younger, they were like, you need a backup plan. You need to, you know, all the typical things that your parents tell you, which in retrospect, great advice, you know, um, but I was super stubborn. And that letter that I wrote them was like, I understand this might disappoint you or this might think you think I'm being irresponsible, but I wish I had the letter because I, it was, I felt like really powerful and it convinced them. Like once they read that letter, they stopped talking to me about that stuff. I think they just kind of knew like it's, it's a lost cause. There's no kind of stopping him at this point. And they saw how passionate it wasn't like I was doing that and then not working hard. It was like, no, I was actually writing music eight hours a day. You know, I was performing every weekend and it was like, they saw the drive. So it was, I think that probably made it easier for them too. I wasn't just like out partying and, and doing that stuff. So but it was, it was a, you know, in retrospect, it was like the letter was for them, but it was also for me too. It was like me really kind of like, okay, this is, this is what I'm doing. I'm putting it on paper. I'm articulating it to the world. And like, this is my path now. It ended up changing, you know, a couple of years later, but you know, it's <laughs> how life goes. Cole mentioned a love of learning, which is an interesting statement for someone who also said he dropped out of college twice. So I was curious where his love of learning came from and when it came into play. So I asked him if there was a person or an experience that helped him to develop it. Yeah, I think it's, it's an interesting question because I, I think about it a lot with Dissect, actually, because part of the reason why I do Dissect is to kind of provide entry points into learning that I feel like is lacking in like academia or other kind of avenues where it's like you kind of have to meet people halfway and so i think everyone that falls in love with education or always has that one story that one person that were that entry point into the world that seemed so kind of foreign to you at some point and that was definitely the case for me i think i definitely had one creative writing professor that really opened my eyes to how just cool and intellectually stimulating and life-changing books and stories could be. And also I had a friend, my friend Jaden, who's still kind of my best friend to this day, who started getting into that stuff earlier than I did and kind of was showing me different books he was reading. He was the one kind of encouraged me to like start experimenting with like creative writing. And he was kind of like my role model for a while there in terms of like, he was always kind of one step ahead. And I was always trying to like, oh, that's really cool. Like, let me try that too. And so I would say those two influences in my early 20s were kind of my entry point into that world. But yeah, I mean, I think there's stories where it's just that switch can kind of flip. And I hope that with Dissect, it kind of does that where it's like, 
you can just put music on for personal enjoyment, or you can actually learn about the world and about how to live and about other people's experiences through music if you just kind of give it the time and the kind of treatment that you would give something else, maybe like a book or or whatever. Something that's really interesting that you you've touched on a few times here is how much your background centers on writing. Mm-hmm. And on the surface, people might think music, 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 but every guest I have on the show, there's just so much that ties back ultimately to writing. And in mm-hmm. your show, I, I read somewhere you said each script is 5,000, 8,000 words. Like there's just a lot yeah. of writing that goes into that. So talk to me about your relationship to writing. Did that start before music? Did you realize that you were really good at both? Or wh- how do you think about the relationship between the two? Yeah, I think there's definitely similarities. I mean, anything creative, I feel like has overlap. I, I definitely started as a musician. I didn't start kind of writing creatively until I was 20 or so. But when I, when I did that, I really fell in love with it. And just, you know, the kind of the beauty of words and the manipulation of words. And it's the same with sound, you know, you're essentially just create like taking something and sculpting something out of it, whether that's sound, whether that's words, whether that's paint, whether, you know, it's all the same in the end. And so, yeah, I was always loved writing, always loved reading. And like in college, just to take it back there, it was like, I loved writing about music and that's, that's something I, I never thought would be the case. And when I looked around about like everyone else in my classes, didn't like doing it. Like I was a guy that like started the essay the first day it was assigned where everyone else I felt like like procrastinating, (laughs) but I just fell in love with just like the research and listening to like the different, different pieces of music. Like if you had to, to write a paper on like Beethoven, it's like, I just loved that time capsule element of just researching the composer, researching the the times that you know he or she was living in, and how that fueled the music. And you, you just end. I guess maybe the best way to explain it is like nothing exists in a vacuum. Like everything being created now exists because everything else around it. And so I love finding those connections. I feel like writing is like the most concise way to like express those connections. And so. Yeah, it's it's ironic that I feel like I more than anything I'm actually a writer low key even though it's a you know I'm a podcaster quote unquote. I spend most of my time writing. And it sounds like you're describing writing as almost this forcing function to do the research and to learn about the process. Exactly. Like that's actually the learning tool, not the output itself. Yeah, exactly. And it is a, it is a discovery process. I'm writing as I'm discovering. It's like in real time you know it's not like i come into these albums like knowing what i mean i have a general sense of what it's about but until you really get into the details you don't really know and so yeah i'm writing through my thoughts and putting the connections together in real time as i'm writing and it's again that's a great way even if you're trying to formulate and articulate ideas i feel like writing is such a great tool for that and it's often you can only articulate it, at least for me, in writing. I'm not, I wouldn't say talking is my strong suit. And I think, you know, talking is a skill like everything else. And it might not be a skill that you're intuitively good at. So writing is, I feel like, is something you can really develop and work at. And to me, it helps formulate and articulate goals, you know, feelings, emotions, all that. After a quick break, Cole and I talk more about music theory and what ultimately led him to create Dissect right after this. If you know me, you know how much I believe in memberships. 
My membership is the core of my business and earning an income directly from your audience is one of the most sustainable ways for you to become a professional creator too. So I wanna tell you about today's sponsor, Uscreen. Uscreen is a beautiful all-in-one platform that helps content creators earn a living from their videos by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. You can host private live streams for your members, build an on-demand catalog of premium content, and Uscreen gives you a community hub to interact with your members too. They can access your community from their mobile phone, so your membership is right there in their pocket. With a Uscreen account, you get video hosting, an out-of-the-box website, full payment and subscription management, and plenty of third-party integrations too. And Uscreen makes it easy to get set up. You get access to powerful website themes that are fully brandable with no coding skills required. Uscreen will even provide a dedicated success manager for you. Just about anyone that wants to make money from their content can do it with Uscreen. It's perfect for coaches, authors, influencers, and entrepreneurs in just about any niche. Right now, Uscreen is used by creators in fitness, education, news, kids entertainment, and more. That includes Yoga with Adrian and Creator Now, just to name a couple. Uscreen is the platform for building a video membership site that is great for generating a sustainable income for professional creators. If you create video content for your audience, I highly recommend checking it out. If you're interested in learning more about Uscreen, visit uscreen.link slash J. That's U-S-C-R-E-E-N dot link slash J and let them know that I sent you. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Last year, my wife and I started talking about her joining the business full time. This is a huge decision, not just for the business, but for our marriage. My wife, being the very smart and thoughtful woman that she is, suggested that we proactively sign up for therapy as a couple to help us communicate better before we started working together. It really helped us have better language to describe how we're feeling and listen to one another, which generally lowers the intensity of any conversation. Now, I had never been in therapy before, but here's something that I didn't expect. It didn't just help our dialogue, but it helped my inner monologue too. The way I understand my own experience has changed based on the tools that I got from therapy. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, so it's convenient, it fits your schedule, and you can be in the comfort of your own home. Just fill out a short questionnaire and you'll get matched with a licensed therapist. They even make it easy to switch therapists if it doesn't feel like a fit. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash creator today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash creator. Welcome back to Creative Elements and my conversation with the host of Dissect, Cole Kushna. When you listen to Dissect, it's obvious right away that Cole must have studied something like musical theory or composition. The things he's able to pull out of songs and break down speak to just how much time he's put into studying music. But I think back to my conversation with James Clear all the time, and the idea that experts often master the art of what matters. They know how to break things down to their simplest forms and ignore the excess. So I asked Cole, After all these years of studying music, what stands out to him as the core of what really matters? You know, I think it's, to be honest, it's just the similarity of art and creatives throughout time. It's, again, part of the reason why I do the show. It's like, I don't see much of a difference between Kanye West and Beethoven. Like, I just don't. They exist in two different times and eras, and they're, you know, different race and But at the end of the day, they're just creatives and they're just expressing ideas through art. And that there's something timeless about that, just that, that expression. 
and like I said, like everything else funnels into that. Like I don't think Beethoven would be writing classical music if he was born today. Like I just don't think that's what he would do. I think he would be more like a Kanye West or name your artist, but I just don't, it's not the same environment. Like the, you know, the time that we're living in the era and, and the environment is going to kind of create different people based on everything. And so that's why I love to learn about what was going on in that era, because it usually always directly informs the music. And so just that concept, I guess, is something that I, I've taken with me and really created the show around, which is, you know, how is music an expression of life? How is the music expression of our time? How are they time capsules? And what can we really, what can we learn from these artists expressing so vulnerably and, and passionately? And it's, I just, again, I don't see much difference between Mozart and who went Bob Dylan or what, you know, it's, it's all the same. Um, and that was, that was funny. It, I guess it, it ties back into my experience with college, which was like, I wouldn't say weird, but it was like, if we can find ways to bring those two worlds together, I feel like classical music would not exist in the vacuum of academia now, which is essentially where it lives. And that's it. And it's, it's again about entry points. It's about trying to find common ground rather than kind of like putting these barriers up. It's interesting because we almost conflate the length of time something has existed with a level of quality, right? It almost feels safe to say like, because classical music is so old and because so many people for so many years have talked about how good this is, that must be the truth and more so than something that has less history and less critical acclaim. And something that you um, said in a recent interview, basically calling out that you think this album that you're doing season eight on, Yeezus by Kanye, is this like standout moment in musical history for, for him as a producer. And I'm curious what you're seeing to call that out and make basically like an early call on this because maybe history will look back on this and say like, this guy was right on, he was right. But not a lot of people will make that call for contemporary artists. And I'm curious what gives you the confidence to say that. Yeah, I mean, with specifically Kanye, to me, it's so obvious. I mean, name a bigger artist than Kanye, hard to do, who's more well-known in name and, and sound than Kanye at right now. And the same could be said with, you know, Mozart, Beethoven, Haydn. Those were the guys in their day. And so, I mean, I opened season eight with Igor Stravinsky, Bob Dylan, and Kanye West. And I do that very strategically because you can look at these moments that sp specifically with these, these three people where there are these controversial moments that in their time were not received well. Igor Stravinsky's Rite of Spring caused a famous riot on its premiere night. Bob Dylan going electric caused, you know, booze at the Newport Folk Festival and people calling him Judas because he betrayed folk music. And then Kanye West coming out with Yeezus and totally like flipping hip hop on its head and people that that album was trashed by most people when it came out. Cutting in here to share part of what makes Cole's production of Dissect so incredible. In the beginning of season eight, when Cole shares these moments from Igor Stravinsky, Bob Dylan, and Kanye West, he doesn't just tell you that Yeezus was trashed. He does the work to pull in reactions to the album from 2013 to show you that it was trashed. This motherfucking album is the worst fucking album I have ever heard in my fucking life. This album, in a word, is incredibly middle-brow. Yeezus is a disaster. This is a Fisher-Price, my first experimental album. I look at this like a little kid that's trying to get my attention by tugging on my shirt. And if I'm ignoring him long enough, he's gonna go light something on fire. 
this motherfucker is garbage, dude. Like, I'm trying to figure out, like, he fucking sucks. And so it's like, in my mind, it's like, okay, here's the biggest artist of the day taking the biggest risk in front of the biggest audience. Bob Dylan's going to stand the test of time. Igor Stravinsky has already still, I just can't see a, a path where Kanye West isn't that guy that we look at a hundred years from now and be like, yep, he changed music at that time. Like hip hop is the biggest genre and Kanye West is one of the biggest hip hop artists ever. So it's just so, it's just obvious to me, you know? So yeah, it is kind of taking bets, but in my mind, and maybe I'm wrong, but it's just so, it's obvious. It's just so obvious. But I think, yeah, I mean, living through history is, you don't ever, it's hard to realize it sometimes, uh, especially like this kind of history, which is kind of secondary to like a 9-11 or, you know, something on that, that nature. But, you know, Jesus was a moment, you know, like that caused real controversy and, and, and discussion and you had to choose a side. It felt like at that, at that time, I would say that the show is taking bets. Like it is like, who are the artists that are going to be a hundred years from now? defining this moment in time and I feel like more or less the artists that have chosen will probably be that some more obvious than others but Kanye I feel like out of all of them a hundred percent well I want to take a, a quick step back here first season of Dissect airs in 2016 how long before you released season one were you working on it how long before that were you ideating on it like help me think about the conception of the show yeah. I mean, it ties into the college thing because I graduated college and it was like, okay, what now? Especially with a music degree, it wasn't like a degree that's an obvious path. The only obvious path with music degree is to teach. And so it became a decision, do I want to get my doctorate or not? And at that point, you know, I graduated when I was 30, I guess. So I was like, a late, I was late in terms of like age. So I was like, do I want to go to school for another four to six years? And at that point, I did not want to do, do that. <laughs> it's like, I've already been Easy to school call. for like 10 years now. It's like, I don't want to go anymore. So, so n not wanting to go back to school, which I almost did, but it, I ultimately decided against. So at that point, I wasn't in a band anymore and I hadn't graduated college. So it was kind of like, what am I going to do creatively? Like, I need something because I've had something my entire life. It kind of goes back to that, those two worlds I was talking about one academic and one kind of popular, I guess you could call it in terms of music. It's like, how do you bridge these two worlds together? So To Pimp a Butterfly came out, actually the day after my daughter was born, To Pimp a Butterfly came out, my first daughter. And I always tell this story because I feel like it was like, looking back, it was definitely a moment I can point to. It was like, oh, that's actually the start of it. It's like, I had take, I just, we had taken our daughter home for the first time and I listen. I was listening to "To Pimp a Butterfly" for the first time with headphones on while I was like holding her in her nursery with the like it was like sunrise, you know, like this kind of beautiful picturesque moment. And that 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 experience was really powerful. The album was really powerful, partly because I was holding my newborn daughter. I think that affected it, but I was just really moved by this record in a way that I hadn't been in a long time. And the more and more I listened to it, I was like, I know he's talking about some serious stuff. But I know that I'm not going to really be able to understand it fully. Like I used to understand these pieces that I studied in college until I do what I did in college, which was research, write, think, ideate, blah, blah, blah. And so I was like, oh, uh, I want to do that. Like it, just, uh, like it just seemed fun to like do that again because I was kind of missing that. And then at the time I was just listening to podcasts and I was listening to Serial 
which I'm sure everyone's heard of or, or listened to, I was like, oh, this would kind of maybe work as a podcast. I could just like record my scripts and put the music in there and call it a day. That's essentially what I did. And kind of the rest is history. I didn't really give it much thought after that. It was like, once I had the idea, it was like, that was it. Dissect was literally the first name that I thought of. That was it. And I just like, go for it. Like, that's kind of what I always encourage people to do is just when you have an idea, just start it. Like the most kind of the thing that I see a lot of people do, they'll say, I got this great idea. It's like this and this and this. So it's like, sounds great. Why aren't you doing it? <laughs> you know, like what's holding you back? Like just jump in and you'll figure it out on the way, but you got to get past that barrier. Cause I feel like the longer you wait, the less likely it is you'll actually follow through because it comes this like thing in your head where you're just like getting in your own way. So I just jumped in and literally what you hear on episode one is the first thing I ever wrote. Welcome to Dissect, long form musical analysis broken into short digestible episodes. I'm your host, Cole Kushner. Our first season of Dissect is dedicated entirely to Kendrick Lamar's 2015 masterpiece, To Pimp a Butterfly. Over the course of nearly 20 episodes, we're going to dive deep into this incredibly rich record. We'll break down both the musical and lyrical content while also analyzing the album's overall narrative arc. There's a lot to unpack on this record. I just went, went in and I kind of figured it out as I went along and it worked out for me. This is interesting because a lot of people, when they start a podcast, they start a podcast because they want to start a podcast and it becomes this exercise of, okay, so what's that podcast going to be? And when they start realizing the realities of where you could put in production value and how much effort that takes, they say, ah, it sounds like a lot of work. I'm going to cut corners. And you were starting from the standpoint of, I know the activity I want to do here. And that may actually just fit into the medium that is podcasting. And that's what got you to do the high level of production and, and effort, frankly, that went into this. When we come back, Cole and I dissect his own creative process, and a little bit later, we talk about how he persevered through late nights and early mornings to get dissect to a point where it supported him full time. So stick around, and we'll be right back. This episode is sponsored by Podcast Movement. For the past decade, Podcast Movement has organized the world's largest gathering of podcasters, featuring thousands of attendees, hundreds of breakout sessions, panels, and workshops, plus the largest trade show in podcasting. Podcast Movement helps podcasters of all experience levels create, grow, and profit from their show. It's suitable for beginners, but you'll also have the opportunity to meet some of the biggest names in the industry. I've been to several Podcast Movement events, and not only is the programming incredible, but the culture and vibe are incredible too. It attracts thoughtful, empathetic, and collaborative people, which makes sense when you think about the medium of podcasting. Podcast Movement hosts two events per year. The first just wrapped up, but their flagship conference is happening August 19th through the 22nd in Washington, D.C. Attendees have the freedom to choose their own adventure across several different stages throughout the four-day event, not to mention dozens of amazing networking events, parties, and the expo hall floor. Tracks include podcast creation, video and live streaming, industry professional, plus several stages of curated programming from some of the top companies in podcasting. It's truly a unique event, and if you are a podcaster, I cannot recommend it enough. Right now, tickets are available at super duper early bird pricing. And as a Creator Science listener, you can save $50 on top of that by visiting podcastmovement.com science. 
That's podcastmovement.com slash science. Welcome back. As you listen to Dissect, you can't help but be blown away by just how deep Cole cuts into these episodes. In fact, he goes so much deeper than I could have ever imagined that I wondered how he himself knows when to cut himself off and call an episode complete. Yeah, oh, it was a learning process for sure. I mean, if you look at those first episodes, I think the the, tie, the length of the episode varies really widely on those first handful of episodes. I think one's even like 17 minutes long, where the, another one's like 40 minutes long. So you can literally see me like figuring this out as I go. So I would say I was just doing it in real time when I got to whatever I wanted to say or, or whatever context I wanted to give. And I just got there. I just stopped. And it was like, that's the episode. But now it's like looking back. Yeah, I was figuring out in real time. Now I've kind of got to the point where I know what I think is the proper length. I know the general approach I want to take. I think I know what works and doesn't now. But again, it was all because I just jumped in and figured it out. I don't think I, if I, even if I try to conceptualize it more before I actually did the work, it would have changed anyways. Like there's no, you can guess and, and think what's going to work, but until you actually do it, hear it, you just don't know. So it wasn't much thought, to be honest with you. It was just, let me do this one episode, listen to it, you know, maybe make some changes, but more it was like, I'm just going to make the next change in the next episode rather than just like really tinkering around with one episode, which maybe in retrospect, I should have done more of. But at that point, I was not thinking that this was going to be anything. Like I was just doing it for my own personal enjoyment. So it didn't matter, <laughs> you know, at that point, like I didn't think I was going to have an audience. You know, I always say like, if someone asked me to make a successful podcast, it would not be one that dissects one album for 13 hours. <laughs> like <laughs> who would ever thought there'd be an audience for that? So, you know, in retrospect, it was kind of good that I just did it because I loved it. And I think that comes through on the show. Like people have told me, you know, you sound like you're passionate about these things, which I am. And it's like, I think that's, you can feel that in the work. And I think that's important. And I think maybe you lose some of that if there's too much pre-planning and production. Maybe some shows work like that, but for this one where it's very individual, it's just me, no guests, like you can feel it. Like it has to be something I really care about. And it really comes through in the small moments where it's like you even do the work of recreating certain beats or like you'll say, actually, let me show you what I'm talking about. And you'll play this as opposed to just explaining what the artist is doing with a certain approach on the song. You'll actually play it on a keyboard. Your ears trained to hear this chord and yearn for this resolving chord. In music theory, this move from the dominant chord to the tonic chord is called a cadence. When the hook of dark fantasy drops into the verse section, we don't get the F major chord as a resolving chord. Instead, we get a D minor chord. Dominant, D minor. Let's hear that transition on piano alone. Dominant, D minor. This move is called a deceptive cadence. Our ear thinks we're headed one place, in this case F major, and instead we get the key's relative minor chord, D minor. And I know some of that you're actually creating yourself in, in your recording space, right? Yeah, some of them I do. Now I have a guy that's really talented, Andrew Atwood, that does all the recreations for me. But in the early days, it was, yeah, just me. Looking at the process now, uh, let's just say you've decided the album, you've decided the artist that you want to focus on for this season. How do you start that process? Do you go big picture contextual and then go song by song? Do you kind of start with the songs and then try to go outwards? Like it seems like you come from you could come from a bunch of different angles. I'm curious what you found to work the best. Yeah, it's I usually start with song one and I'll just episode one I don't write for a while. 
and I'll just dive right into the music because usually that's going to tell me where I need to go with the intro and how to contextualize it. Because again, like you can have an idea of where what the album's about or what a song is about, but until you really do the nuanced, detailed digging that's required to kind of unearth kind of these these discoveries, you don't really know. So I always try to get a handful of episodes done so I can at least get a general shape of the concepts and the themes and, and all that. And then I'll go back after thinking about it for a while and like, okay, how do I set this up? What's really important about this artist where they were in the, you know, it depends on the album or the artist, but it's like, where were they in, the, in this moment in time? What was going on in the country? If there's any kind of like, like for Lemonade season, it was very clear that the elevator incident with Jay-Z and Solange and Beyonce was the, that was what started the snowball that became Lemonade. So I was like, okay, I got to start there. And then how do I then kind of bring people to, how do you get from that moment to Lemonade? Sometimes it's clear cut like that. Other times it's like not so much. And maybe like with that album, like To Pimp a Butterfly, it's like, yeah, you have to kind of go into like the history of Compton and those kind of contextual environmental things because that's what he's talking about on the record. So it's like, you got to set up. I always try, you know, I'm always trying to think about what's the artist's intention and how do I most clearly get that point, their point across in a way that they can't really do outside of the music? You know, it's hard to, for music, it's like very conceptual and there's only so much you could kind of do, but it then kind of opens up this whole other world. It's like my job is to like try to piece together that whole other world and present it in a way that's digestible for everyone. So that's what I'm trying to do usually is just, it always starts from the music and the artist. How do you, manage the time in research versus working through this like it's when i listen to the episodes it almost seems like you could have been spending literal days just going through youtube and listening to interviews in this time period do you batch activities like that in research and then come back and say okay here's everything i did or do you kind of bounce between the two yeah usually it starts before i do like the first song it's like yeah it is like a few weeks of just that like youtube interviews any interviews sometimes it's easier than others because like Beyonce again, like doesn't do any interviews. So that's easy. Um, but for that, for like, for that one, it was like, I read there's books on lemonade. So I read those. Um, so yeah, it depends on, on what, but there is a heavy amount of research that goes into it before I even start script one, but then you have to know when to cut yourself off because you can live in that world forever. And so once I have a pretty general sense of like, okay, I think I understand what's going on and then I'll understand even more once I get it really into the music and then it becomes yeah this hybrid process of like okay dissecting the songs but then also thinking about bigger picture stuff and just kind of juggling both of those simultaneously how much are you editing existing scripts that might have been in your mind quote unquote done as you're going later in the album usually very rarely actually um, because i set it up where most of the albums that i cover have a linear kind of narrative and so if i miss something in like say song two that comes up in song seven because i'm kind of discovering this in real time with the audience i could get i can then just go oh this relates back to song two to foreshadow is really hard but to to look back is really easy because mm. it's like if i'm trying to foreshadow it's like okay this is going to set up the song that we haven't talked about yet and all these other things we haven't talked about yet so it doesn't really even make sense to do useful. that yeah so it actually just worked in my favor where I was like, oh, if it, something comes up, I'll just go back. And I don't ever go forward actually too much ever. So I've kind of structured it in a way that allows me to just keep plowing ahead, which helps. You said a little bit ago, you didn't expect that this type of thing would have an audience. So you're just starting to hit publish. 
When, when do you start noticing that people are tuning in and paying attention? Yeah, so the first couple episodes had like 50 listeners or something, you know, which is obviously, it's probably going to be the case, unless you're already established as a celebrity or something, that's going to be the case, the case you know? Right. I, but I saw a slow audience start to build by, episode, you know, the last episodes of season one, where it was like enough to be like, okay, I'll do it again. Like, that was a big thing where it was like, okay, 22 episodes in, is it worth it to keep now start another album and do another season? And actually real quick on that point, how, how many hours do you think you spent per episode in season one? Uh, Probably 20 to 30 per episode. So it, it had to be significant for you to be like, I'll do it again because that is a huge commitment. Yeah, I mean, and I, like I said, I just had a baby and I also have a wife. And so it's like a lot of things to juggle. And I was working full time. I, I had a nine to five job. So I was doing this all at night, you know, essentially after my newborn daughter went to sleep. So it was a lot. I mean, it was a, especially by the end of season two, there was no way I was going to be able to continue it after season two, unless I wanted to get a divorce, <laughs> frankly. Um, yeah, I'm hearing this like recently engaged. I'm hearing this. I'm like, I would not be able to do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's just the, the honest truth. And the timing with Spotify worked out really, really perfectly. But season one, yeah. I mean, it was, I think, I can't remember exactly the numbers, but it was like definitely a couple thousand listeners pretty regularly which i thought was cool like again i didn't do it to to do that and but what what i did notice early on though was that the people that were listening were really into it and i would get letters and you know dms and stuff that were just saying very gracious and appreciative and also like sharing like personal things about themselves which i thought was strange at first but then it was like kind of an aha moment for me because you realize you're like just talking to people for hours in their ears, super intimate podcasting, super intimate in that way. So you, and I have the experience with other hosts that I listen to where you just feel like you know them after a while. They're like kind of like this distant friend, like one way friendship or something. I was like, oh, that makes sense. And then I was like, and I'm, even though I don't think I would have made this podcast if it was like, you know, someone told me to, to start a successful one, but in retrospect, it worked out that it was so niche because I think all popular podcasts or a lot of them feel like they're so specific in their content that you feel like it's like made for you. They're like it's tailored exactly to what you are interested in, which is the great thing about podcasting. So I realized that too. And so there was enough early on where I was like, maybe I've got something here and I love to do it, which was the most important thing. I loved to do it. I look forward to doing it every day. I still look forward to doing it every day. It was a no brainer to start season two. But season two is when I started to think way more seriously about how do I now make this a career, you know? And I think you had a Patreon for a while, right? It was like the goal was to get enough patrons yep. that that was going to be the route. And that that hit the goal, I think, if I remember correctly. Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, I can't remember exact number, but it was like, I think it was up to like $2,500 a month, which was like getting pretty close to like, it would be you know, thin, but it was like getting to the point where I was like, maybe I could actually quit my job or at least go part-time or something and do this for real. But then podcasting just exploded. And that really worked in my favor for sure, where people, any successful podcast, because season two is really when the podcast started to take off. Articles were re kind of being written about it all the time. Suddenly Twitter following was like really rapidly gaining. And like I had multiple podcast companies seeing the success and then start to reach out. And so- I actually had a few options by the end of season two and Spotify was hundred percent the best one and worked out really, really well. But there's a world where that doesn't happen, you know, but again, like 
something I always think about is like this, and I say it pretty transparently on season two finale, kind of share my story because I kind of saw it go hand in hand with what Kanye was talking about. But just like the idea of perseverance of like, I think I even said on that finale episode is like, my goal always was like, make a living doing something you love was always like the universal goal, whether that was music, something to do with music, whatever it was, do something that you love for a living was the goal. But the biggest challenge, a challenge that lasts to this day, is simply time. I work a full-time job and I have a wife and daughter. That's enough to fill a daily schedule and then some. In order to create this podcast, I wake up every day at 5 a.m. I work on the podcast. I go to work for eight to nine hours a day. I come home and spend time with my family. They go to sleep and I stay up late working on this podcast. The next morning I get up and do it all over again. The world gives you nothing until you give it everything. That's been my mantra this year. And frankly, I live in a perpetual state of exhaustion. But make no mistake, I love creating Dissect. I voluntarily choose exhaustion in the ongoing pursuit of a lifelong dream. To make a living doing something I created, something that I love. And it's extremely exciting and honestly a bit surreal for me to announce today, and I'm not exaggerating here, literally the day I'm recording this, I officially accepted an opportunity that will allow me to create Dissect full-time. I'm quitting my job tomorrow, and come 2018, I'll be making a living doing something that I created, something that I love. It's still all sinking in, to be honest. But to bring it all back to this season, I shared with you my story because it's a personal account of art-inspiring action, one that I hope resonates with you. Because when we strip my story of its specifics, we have a man who examined and re-examined the challenges of his life and constantly realigned his life trajectory in order to make progress. It's my story, it's Kendrick's story, it's Kanye's story, and it's your story too. And it's like, you know, I've kind of told my story over the course of the podcast where it was like all these iterations and all these failures, there's a hundred different points at which I could have just quit you know, and just stopped and just kind of gave up, did the nine to five thing. Could have been at, probably fleshed out a really nice life that way. But there's always that thing inside me of that you can do this. Like, and I just didn't give up. And it was like a year of doing the podcast where I got to do it full time. But it wasn't a year, it was 20 years. Like it, it took me 20 to 25 years to get to that point where finally something, the timing was right. All, it's like luck and all these things played different parts in, in everyone's success. And so finally things kind of like aligned perfectly for me, but you have to give yourself an opportunity to be lucky is something that I always think about. Like you have to give yourself a shot. Otherwise it's, it's something I tell my kids all the time. If you don't try, it's a guaranteed failure. At least if you try and you fail, you gave yourself a percentage shot of actually doing the thing. So you have to keep trying. You just have to keep trying uh, if, if it's something that you really want and you have to give yourself the opportunity to get lucky. How much pressure did you feel along the way to either live up to listener expectations or at some point, I imagine the show is big enough that you realized, oh, wow, this show where I am digging into the psyche and context of Kanye West might get big enough that he might actually hear something about it. Like, did you ever feel pressure around that? Uh, I don't think pressure, no, because the show is always, the show is a celebration of music. So I was never really worried. Even if I got an interpretation wrong, it's like you can chalk that up to just interpretation, right? Like I think the best artists know once their art is out into the world, it's kind of at the free will of everyone, whatever people want to do with it, it's theirs to do that with. So 
you know, I was well enough researched in each of these albums and artists to think that I was doing a decent job in telling their story or, or their, their expression. If I got some things wrong, I don't know, I'm not going to get everything right. It's impossible without talking to them. And even then, so luckily the feedback that I've heard from artists or people around them have all been positive. But again, there's literally not one word of criticism on the show. It's a celebration of the music in a way that I, I'm a musician, so I kind of know how I think music should be talked about in a way that really respects the artists. And like, I, that's kind of another reason why I started the show is like, there wasn't too many outlets that really celebrated art in the way that I think art, great art should be celebrated. It always comes with some like shitty critique or like some journalist's like dumb opinion. No offense to journalists, but it's just like, I saw way too many people inserting their themselves into the someone else's expression, which I get there's a world and a place for that, but I just didn't think there was enough of the other side where it was like, let's go into the piece of art and leave ourselves out of it. Let me just see what this person is trying to say and tell us and share with us what can we learn from them and just completely giving yourself over to the art. What happens then, you know? And it's like people are so passionate about music. Maybe hearing someone's critique is interesting, but like I think hearing more articulation about something that you love is way more compelling than some writer's opinion on what works and what doesn't. Like I'm here to like learn from these artists and from this these artworks. I'm not here to critique them. It's kind of like a conversation. Like the artist gave us like this kind of like clay that we can mold and and like use for this like one it's a, it's like a two-sided conversation but obviously it's like not because it's a static thing but these are like living breathing pieces of art that you can interact with and interpret and learn from and it's like I just wanted to to see what happens when you give yourself over completely to that idea and so to answer your question uh I'm not worried <laughs> <laughs> I love that you said that though I remember thinking back to when Chance's album, The Coloring Book, came out, there were pieces online from journalists literally like less than an hour later talking about how good or how bad it was. And I remember just thinking like, how could you possibly have a strong enough opinion yeah. to have even listened to the album in full and have written this? How do you think about like how long you sit with a piece and think about it before you really start digging into or dissecting your own opinion on it? I mean, I think that's exactly why podcasts became so popular is like in the media cycle that we're at now, you know, to give them the benefit of the doubt, they're kind of forced to make these hot totally. takes right away because everything's in the moment and it's like scrolling and blah, blah, blah. So I get, I get why you kind of have to do that as a media outlet now for better, or for worse. But podcasting is great because people are turning to it for long form conversations, long form content in the same way people will have this new there's a newfound appreciation for tv now that we can binge it it's like people want 13 hour stories you know these shows that are super complex that are each season's 13 to 15 hours and then there's eight seasons and it's like you realize you can tell these really dynamic and complex stories and people will actually sit through it and and really enjoy it i think dissect speaks to that urge a little bit in terms of people wanting more than the surface level stuff we're getting all the time kind of a breath of fresh air in terms of like actually sitting with one thing for a long period of time now, where again, everything else is kind of such at a fast pace. So, you know, I know I learned the most from these experiences of really sitting with one thing for an extended period of time, because you'd forget that these artists, especially the great ones, are working on these albums for months, 
often years, you know, like Frank Ocean, for example, is like working on his stuff for literally three, four years every time. So they're putting a lot of thought. It's not just arbitrary, these things, the great, you know, the greatest works aren't arbitrary. So it is going to take you a lot of time to unpack and it might not hit you perfectly the, you know, the first time you listen to it. Like Jesus is a great example of that, where I feel like in the moment it was so controversial and, and people just came out and blatantly like disregarded it. But now I feel like there's been this over the years, been this really newfound appreciation for that record specifically. You know, you could say the same thing about 808s and Heartbreak, his other kind of more controversial record at the time where rap was still rap, rapidly rap. And he came out with a full singing album with autotune, which was at that time so unheard of. And then now everything sounds like that. So, and that's why I kind of like to choose not records that are not quite in the moment, but we've had a few years at least to kind of sit with them and then revisit them, re-bring them to the surface. Because again, in this culture that we're in, we're kind of just swipe and scroll and everything's behind us. And if it's in the past, it's in the past, but it's like, no, let's actually like return to these great works because they have something to say still, you know? To this point, you've covered independent artists as opposed to bands. We talked earlier, like it was difficult when you're in a band to even coordinate all these people. Do you think that speaks to the level of creative work that can go into a piece when it's just one single individual putting their and only their expression into something? Or is that just kind of coincidence? I think it's coincidence because I, but because I don't think, I'm trying to think if there's any artist that I've done that is not super collaborative. Like Kanye is, in terms of collaboration, like that's his greatest skill is like orchestrating different creatives and singular, you know, it's his vision, but especially lately, it's like he's, I mean, he's doing some of it himself, but a lot of the times it's like he's just kind of putting people in the right room or giving them the right directions and taking everyone's ideas and and kind of filtering out the best ideas. It's like, he's kind of like a curator now. Same with Beyonce. It's like, you look at Beyonce's production and songwriting lists. It's like, it's miles long, right? But that's nothing to take away from these artists. It's like, it actually speaks to their skill of like creating these very singular focused works with cohesive stories and themes, but also working with all these, the best of the best people and, and solidifying these ideas into something that is cohesive and focused uh that's a huge that's a big skill it's the same way you know an orchestrator or a conductor works with a a big orchestra where it's like you're just trying to get everyone on the same page and bringing out the best in everyone which is again a skill so even though they are under the name of beyonce kendrick you know tyler it's like i see them as collaborative works especially when you get into the details of more than just the name kanye west you actually look at the credits and you realize man, this is, you know, this is a mile long. And how did he work with five producers on one track and get this really great piece? That's that's like why it's interesting, you know? All right, last question. You started as an indie podcaster. Now you're working within Spotify. For folks listening to this who think maybe podcasting is my game, but they're starting independently or assuming they have to start independently, what type of advice would you give to a podcaster starting today? It's harder today than it was. I always think about if I started a podcast now, would it have the same success? And I don't know if it would. Timing was a big part of my story for sure. But I would just go back to, if you're doing it because you love it, that'll make your show better and it'll give you a better chance at actually doing something with it because you're going to do it no matter what. And you're going to, again, go to go back to the perseverance idea. You're just going to do it because you love it. If you don't love it and you're just doing it because you think you might be able to, to make a buck off of it, probably not going to last long. And so... I always encourage people just to do what they love. And if podcasting, it happens to be that one thing, 
just make the best podcast you can get better and better each day. And obviously there's going to be some strategies in terms of growing audience and making the show better and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, it's the show that matters. It's again, to tie it back to like the art is it's the art that matters. It's, it's the product that matters. It's not so much everything that else that comes from it is kind of ancillary because if you're doing it for the right reasons, again, you're going to just want to keep doing it. All the artists that I know that still create art even into their mid thirties, which is the age I am now. I know a ton of people that gave up completely. I know a few people that persevered because they love it. And, you know, even bringing this, this kind of conversation full circle that my friend Jaden, who is like kind of my person I was looking to for artistic kind of guidance in my early twenties, just got his doctorate in creative writing and now is a head of a creative writing program at a college. He's 38, you know, it's like, it took him just like my journey was 25 years. It took him 20 whatever years, but he did it and he's here and he's now he's doing something he loves. He just didn't give up, you know? And I think if you go through anyone's story, I think there's like some saying about an overnight success is never an overnight success. We just see the overnight success, but the reality is they've been grinding forever to get to this moment, to have the overnight success. So I would just say perseverance, if you love it, it won't even seem like perseverance because you won't even know what else to do. That was kind of my thinking at the time. So it still is, you know, I would, I don't think I would do the show still if I didn't love it, even if I was making a living at it. So yeah, persevere would be the message. I had a blast chatting with Cole about both his process and his journey. It's probably pretty obvious, but Cole's story as an indie podcaster who built a show people loved and supported him full-time is super aspirational for me. As I shared in the beginning, Creative Elements just passed its own first year mark, and I've seen a lot of growth in the first year. Thousands of listeners and more than 500,000 downloads. And so I truly, truly thank you, the listener, for continuing to listen and support this show. My goal is to make Creative Elements your absolute favorite show, and so your feedback is a huge part of what makes that possible. I'm listening to season eight of Dissect right now, and if you enjoyed this episode, I strongly recommend you check it out too. Season eight is exclusively on Spotify right now, which also happens to be the podcast player that I use the most. Thanks to Cole for being on the show. Thank you to Emily Klaus for making the artwork for this episode. Thanks to Nathan Todd for mixing the show and Brian Skeel for creating our music. If you like this episode, you can tweet at me at jklaus and let me know. And if you really want to say thank you, please, please, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening and I'll talk to you next week. Sonic Universe.